0: Podo. Welcome to the Ned Ludd Radio Hour. I'm Nick Hilton. You've got mail. I have a confession to make. Despite an attitude to the world that often makes people think I'm probably a baby boomer, though possibly a Gen Xer, given how often I accuse people of selling out, I was actually born in the early 1990s. This means a few things. It means that I was only partially vaccinated as a child due to fears that the injection would give me autism. It means that I watched, square-eyed, the news reports that Princess Diana had died and that the first single I ever bought was Elton John's re recording of Candle in the Wind for her funeral. But first and foremost, it means that I n- never really lived without the internet. Sure, we had horrible dial up, the sort that went offline if someone tried to use the phone when you were surfing the web. And certainly I didn't have any sort of, you know, smartphone well into my teenage years. Indeed, I remember failing to connect via WAP. Do they have WAP in the US? To, to the limited websites that were accessible on my little Samsung flip phone. But I am internet and screen native, incubated in the great digital bosom. I can recall the early agonized conversations that parents were having about the internet. The bogeyman of that period was chat rooms, where children were apparently being groomed by sexual predators. I, as a child at the time was never entirely clear where these chat rooms were to be found. Mostly I used MSN Messenger to send awkward messages to people I barely spoke to at school. But the 90s and early noughties were typified by a, a fear that the internet was a wilderness that parents couldn't control, and that children were in danger there. In danger both of using their new independence to fall prey to predators, but also of losing a second sort of independence, the competence to exist In the IRL world, and this was largely before IRL existed as an initialism. Now, I'm not entirely sure what's happened to these scaremongering conversations in the intervening years. It may well be that teenagers of today, kids born between 2005 and 2010, largely have parents who grew up with some sort of internet. Their parents likely went to college or into the world of work at a time when digital ubiquity had been achieved. It is entirely possible, and this is a scary thought, it is entirely possible that there are teenagers in the world today who were conceived to the sounds of Barry White being played on their parents' Spotify account. And those kids are now teenagers. This doesn't mean that the conversation about whether the internet is A, safe, and B, good for children is over. It's definitely not, given that's what we're going to be talking about today. But it does feel like the question has moved away from being a simple binary, I messaged Ned about all of this and to get their take on whether we should continue to interrogate the impact of the digitization of kids' lives. They replied with two points which I'll recount here. I have two points to make on this. The first is to encourage a separation of risk and platform. A kid who goes out on the street anywhere in the world, but more so in, in many places where there is a war or disease or crazy traffic, is running a risk. The harm of the Internet is generally lower risk than leaving the house but either way we only superficially regulate access to, to the streets and more than superficial regulation would constitute an impingement upon basic rights. The platform cannot be held responsible for the risks which are ultimately inherent to community living. The second point is to say that the COVID-19 pandemic has reconstituted a whole generation's relationship with the internet. Whether they embrace that or repudiate it remains to be seen, but the impact is undeniable. There is no realm within the interpersonal social lives of modern teenagers that doesn't have a digital proxy, a discrete realm without a tangible sibling. As I say, the downstream impact is yet to be seen, but the implications in either direction are profound. Schooling used to be the last best hope against indoctrination by antisocial movements, It was an inoculation for children against loneliness, isolation and social unsuitability. Zoom classrooms, is anyone calling them class Zooms, surely, is the opposite of this. It allows the worst tendencies of children to fester. Be careful. Now, even with that slightly ominous warning ringing in my ears, I'm pleased that we've touched upon the point of the pandemic because it's one that exercises me greatly. I don't want to be too pearl-clutching about all of this, but there are some kids who never touch grass, figuratively or literally. I see these groups of teenagers in London who seem to be chatting, but seem also to have their headphones in, like they're living some strange hybrid life. How long is it before their ability to function in a society that has long-prized independence is irreparably eroded? To discuss all this, I dialed up Lenore Skenazy, Lenore is a writer, activist, and president of Let Grow, a parenting organization. Her book, Free Range Parenting, outlines her stance on giving children more, not less, independence. She even hosted a show on CineFlix called World's Worst Mum, a moniker she was given after she wrote a column about letting her nine-year-old ride the subway alone. But more on that in a second. Anyway, here's our conversation, which hopefully gives you something to think about.
1: I'm in New York City, in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is the coolest neighborhood anywhere. 167 languages spoken, and it is 10 a.m.
0: Okay, 10 a.m. So you're just starting the day. So I first came across uh, your work, I guess, as it was coming to the UK. It was exploding. (laughs) Um, This was was a few years after I think you wrote a piece about your kid and the subway, which was a viral moment. But can you start by um, telling people about Firstly, the experience of doing that, and then also the reaction it provoked.
1: Uh, Yeah, sure. So um, many years ago now, our youngest son, Izzy, uh, was asking my husband and me if we would take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home by subway, or I guess you'd say tube over there, but we're in New York City, it's the subway, Um, probably dirtier and a little, you know, (laughs) worse for the wear. But uh, we said yes. And so one sunny Sunday, I took him to Bloomingdale's, a very fancy department store where he hadn't been because he was a nine-year-old boy. And uh, Bloomingdale sits on top of a subway station. And so I said goodbye. And I went one way. And he obviously found his way down to the subway. He talked to a stranger. He was got a little, uh, you know, fatutzed, a little, you know, confused. Uh, but then he found his way down to uh, 34th Street, like the Miracle on 34th Street Street, and Miraculously, he emerged from the subway, took a bus across town, came into our apartment, levitating, happy, um, feeling like we trusted him and that he'd done something cool in the real world. And I was a newspaper columnist back then, and I didn't write about it because it didn't strike me as a big deal um, until like a month or two later when I had nothing to write about. I was like, ah, should I write about Izzy's subway ride? You know, and my editor said, okay, you know. Local stories, sure. And so I wrote, why I, why I let my nine-year-old ride the subway alone. And two days later, I was on uh, shows that would amaze you, but you haven't heard of them over there. But it was like the Today Show, huge show, and MSNBC and Fox News, which are on polar opposite ends of the political spectrum. And every, you know, the equivalent of BBC, blah, 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 blah. And um, so that weekend, I started a blog back when blogs were a thing before Substack. And I called it... Um, free range kids mm-hmm. and then i wrote a book called free range kids and then i became the free range kids lady and actually i just got a an email no a twitter a tweet yesterday from somebody in west virginia and and it linked to a law that was being proposed and we've actually already passed laws in eight states you know there's 50 here so we got a bunch to go but this was one we hadn't passed in yet And it was called the free range parenting law. And it said, this law is to let parents, you know, give their kids independence if they um, think that their kids are ready for it and that it would be good for them. And I thought, that's a long journey, but it's, it's had its repercussions. So that's me.
0: So when your, when your son asked you, can I do a subway journey on my own? Obviously a lot of parents would say, no, you (laughs) you must've had an impulse in you at that point to be like, it would be good for him to experience more independence? Was he feeding off a sort of energy that you were putting forward? Or was it in that moment where you're just like, you know what, why not?
1: Oh, I wish I had a cogent answer for you. Uh, He's 25 (laughs) at the moment. So I don't remember everything that went into it, except that it was a persistent desire. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like he asked one day and I took him out the next. It was something that really meant a lot to him. And my husband and I, um, discussed it, you know, too. Does this make sense? Is it safe enough? We have an older son who hadn't asked us (laughs) to do this. So we had to think, you know, we hadn't confronted it before, but, um, when, when we decided, yes, it was, um, if I thought that it was dangerous, literally dangerous, I would have said no, because I don't like my kids being in danger. I'm, I'm in such a state today. Uh, my kids are driving up from New York to Vermont to go skiing, which is already dumb. This weekend, they're going to both be in the car together, and there's a snowstorm coming, and I, I hate this. So it's not mm. like I'm not a nervous mom. Um, but I didn't really see a danger in him being on the subway, because that's how we get around all the time. That's how 6 million people get around every day. And so- I wasn't worried about that.
0: Can, can I ask a, an obvious question? I mean, I, I ask my friends who are native Londoners this quite often, and be like, do you remember when the first time you took the tube on your own was? No one remembers their first solo tube journey, I, I find.
1: No one like, do you have a sense of what the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: when it becomes a newspaper column, um, then I guess so. But um, do you have a sense of what the normal starting age is these days?
1: I don't have a sense of that. I mean, I have a lot of data these days about... Um, You know, kids not walking to school and what age parents let their kids walk to the park or go to a friend's house. And uh, the subway, I don't know. All I can tell you is that when I was on these TV shows and sometimes Izzy was with me and they're, you know, they're making your hair look better and they're making everything look better um and they would say you know what are you going on for and I said I'm talking about letting my son ride the subway alone everybody would reminisce about oh I did that I did that in the 70s I did that in the 80s and there was you know there was all the you know crime I did it in the 90s and there were all the crack files and so whenever how however old kids are now when they're taking the subway they used to be younger (laughs) a generation ago it was normal to to ride the subway at age nine
0: okay so it's on a sort of trajectory in one direction. And Do you think that since, I mean, you, you refer to it as being, I don't know what, uh, 13 years ago? More, more uh, Let's see, no? he's
1: 25 and he was nine. So uh, six, oh my God, S- I can't even say it. 16 years you, ago. You, yeah, right. Superannuated, a word I don't use a lot, but I guess I will.
0: <laughs> okay. So this was 16 years ago. Do you, do you have a sense that 16- now, oh, nine, you know, it would be even more provocative to say that you've let your nine-year-old ride the tube or or have you kind of successfully created an environment <laughs> where free-ranging your children is a little
1: bit right, more everyone's got normal. the T-shirt. I would say that it would be more unusual now for one particular reason, and that is that people don't think that the subways are as safe now as they were, even, you know, 16 years ago. Uh, you know, they're ugly and they're smelly, and um, but they get you around, right? And um, people have felt since COVID that um, they became less even less appealing, I would guess. I mean, I I find them appealing. Actually, I just had a friend over breakfast and we were talking about how much we love the subway. We do love the subway, but there's, you know, there's a lot of homeless people around and I don't ever feel threatened, Um, but it is, you know, the reality is it's, there's a lot of stuff going on, not dangerous, but not pleasant.
0: But there's a larger kind of issue here, which is to do with children's independence, their sense of place in the world, which is facilitated so much when they're young by their parents, by adults. And understanding the kind of interrelations of those things, obviously the the subway was a kind of good example, <laughs> and it was a kind of punchy one. In it, you know, it was easy to book right, on. Right. If I let my kid
1: go to the grocery and get a loaf of bread, that probably wouldn't be an international story.
0: <laughs> right. But it was it was part of what you must have felt was like a bigger sense that children were becoming less oh, independent yeah. and being you know wrapped up a bit and overprotected. But what did you feel was the detriment there? Because a lot of parents would say, "Look, I just." Whatever keeps them safest Mm -hmm. is is what I care about. What do you think is detrimental in overdoing it with these sort of measures?
1: Well, what's keeps being remarkable to me is the idea that that um, if something isn't one hundred percent safe, the only alternative is it's dangerous. Uh, It's it's so interesting in these polarized times. I feel like that's part of the polarization. It's either perfectly safe or extraordinarily dangerous, and. I think there's a danger in that vision because if you think that anytime your child isn't directly supervised by an adult, they're in danger. First of all, you hate any parent like me who would trust their kid in the world, and secondly, you're you're, mean, you're, you're making your child's world very—I um, I wouldn't even say small, but it's it's under—it's like having a, a security guard with you all the time. I mean, and that's. That strikes me as a danger all its own, the idea that kids are getting, um, that that the world is really dangerous, and that they are both, um, you know, threatened and incompetent, right? If anything happened, there better be an adult there to help them. And the thing that has changed in the these 16 years that we're talking about is that now kids all have phones. Mm. And because they have phones, it's a really different childhood too, because first of all, they're locatable um, by the parents. And that's just, you just grow up thinking, of course, I have to be locatable, otherwise I'm in danger. And then it's also really easy to reach an adult, generally a parent, if you're confronted with a, you know, like you're lost, or should you buy this? Or do you have to come home? Or what should I do now? And you know, part of growing up is growing up. It's individuating. It's, it's, I hate that word. It's, it's becoming a kid who can do things in the world without somebody always intervening, assisting, watching. And that strikes me as its own danger. And it's not just me. I, um, I work, uh, now I run a nonprofit, which I guess you would call a charity, uh, called let grow, not let it go, not let it grow. Let new word grow. Hard to remember. Um, But one of my co-founders is a a professor named Peter Gray, and he has spent his entire um, professorial career as a psychology professor studying the importance of independence and free play. And he found that as children's independence has gone down over the decades, their um, depression, anxiety, passivity, you know, self-harm has gone up. And so the danger that we're worried about the, in, you know, oh my God, they're going to, you know, our child is going to be kidnapped, um, is salient and sort of front of brain uh, for our parents. But the slow drip of feeling like the world is against you and only your parents can keep you safe, that doesn't come into the equation.
0: I just also wonder whether this is a American <laughs> issue in a sense. I mean, I, I think we in the UK, um, you know, that you know, when, when America sneezes, we catch a cold, and all of that sort of <laughs> stuff. But I, there's a Japanese. You must be, you must be yes, the Japanese, Japanese program.
1: old enough. <laughs> and I guess
0: such a show would not exist in the UK at least. I don't think. I think the BBC would not dare to dare <laughs> to. It's a show for listeners where children who are, you know, too, often two or three, their sort of toddler age, are sent to do kind of like small, achievable chores while a camera crew kind of f- watch them do it and they keep them obviously very safe. But uh, it, it sort of speaks perhaps to the fact that maybe there are other countries which have a, maybe a different culture around kind of childhood empowerment. Is that true? Is it is America particularly bad for model coddling?
1: First of all, I actually think that the Japanese show went a little nuts with the two-year-olds <laughs> going to get the fish for the sushi. I mean, that just seemed like, okay, uh, you know, everybody, you eventually... Ping against like, can we have them in embryonic form? You know, right. we have a fetus. Go get the rice. No, but we can get a two year old. Oh, that sounds good. Obviously, the culture there celebrates um, more independence than we do. Kids who are um, kindergarten wear little yellow hats so that everybody knows. I mean, people in America say, "So you know who to snatch?" Yes. If I'm going to snatch a kid, they better be five and not six. You know, I don't think I don't think people are thinking that way. But they wear those hats because the whole culture expects to help children. And especially when they're particularly young and they're just in their first year of walking to school, they're wearing these hats. So um, there is a different culture. Obviously, it's more homogenous. But even in my lifetime, uh, you know, American kids, I, when I was an American kid, myself, uh, age five, we walked to kindergarten. And this was not uh, you know, a daredevil weird thing. When when I was walking to kindergarten at age five, you'd get to the corner and there would be a crossing guard who was 10, you know, another kid who would help you cross the street, stop the traffic, you know, take a child's life in their own hands. So it's, it's not that um, it's another culture. It's just this era. We just have lost our complete minds when it comes to the fact that children are thinking human beings, thinking, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, adaptable and, you know, uh, courageous human beings. You probably interviewed Frank Ferrati at some point on this podcast. He wrote uh, How Fear Works. And, And what changed is that we have started seeing kids only through the lens of vulnerability, not thinking that they're kind of resourceful, kind of resilient, you know, knock them around, they'll get back up and it'll be a little better for them even. And only thinking, the only compassionate thing to do is think of them in terms of what horrible thing could happen and how long they would suffer. And and not even if they're dead, like they'll just suffer trauma for the rest of their lives. So that seems to have resonated or happened throughout the Western English speaking world. I don't think of um, your country as way more brave than mine when it comes to kids. I don't think of Australia as particularly brave. Um, Canada, mm. no. Uh,
0: but you talk about it being in kind of an era concern. You know, I'm a millennial. I'm in my early 30s, and I, when I was growing up, we were this phrase. You know, snowflake emerged. This idea that we were being very protected. That there was like children were not being allowed to fail, whether it was in schools. You know, like you know, standardized testing was being you know pushed down. All of these things. It was a big kind of discourse. But of course it's a, really a problem for Gen X, who are the parents, because, you know, the children are kind of passive consumers of the environment. So, you know, millennials are often considered a very closed off generation have been over oversheltered. Um, well,
1: tell me, wait, wait, wait. So pause, you're a millennial. What do you see in terms of your generation? I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm worried about something that really doesn't end up having a big impact. Tell me.
0: Uh No, I'm definitely, uh you know, I, I obviously, I had a kind of suburban upbringing, mm-hmm. you know, we, we had enough, we had enough kind of space to like that it, it wasn't a major concern about, you know, having a bit of a stroll around the neighborhood, you know, and that sort of stuff. But but certainly, it was not an independent lifestyle. And I and I certainly felt like, you know, all through like the education system and all of that sort of stuff, there were always a lot of fail safes and fallbacks. And um, we'll come to the idea of technology. But that was increasingly impactful was the presence of technology in terms of like providing safety mechanisms. I was, you know, I'm too old to have been had a mobile phone when I was a child. Mm -hmm. But but, you know, certainly a lot of my increasingly a lot of my social life became, you know, at home. Mm I didn't have to go out. I wasn't, you know, as a teenager, you know, lots of what would have been the rowdy Friday nights. You know, were spent on M- MSN Messenger rather than, you know, down at the beach. You know, so so, so certainly there was there was a sense of it, but I, I felt like a lot of the scrutiny was coming from older generations who were maybe agonised about what they were doing to their children. You know, the, a sense that you know maybe maybe they weren't giving the children their upbringing, or that older generations than themselves were criticizing you know (laughs) everybody
1: criticizes everyone so let's just get that that, yeah so
0: is it is it just a sort of inexorable thing that like we always want to raise our children slightly more safely than than we ourselves were raised
1: I think we always, I mean, I think there's, uh, you know, an instinct across the animal kingdom to accept maybe for tarantulas. Like somebody eats their young, but <laughs> gerbils. But other than them, uh, most of us want to keep our children, you know, well and uh, healthy and raise them to um, successfully reproduce again. So the desire to keep your child safe isn't new. I think the belief that kids can't handle anything and, And I I try to explain this to people, and it doesn't make sense because it feels like I'm talking about, what I'm talking about feels to parents like instinct, but I don't think it's instinct. This belief that the second your kids aren't with you, they are automatically in danger. That's what I was trying to explain with. My mom was a stay-at-home mom in the suburbs, and when I went around the corner to walk to school, she wasn't... Having a breakdown every day, like, oh my God, what about predators? I could never forgive myself. The phrase, I could never forgive myself, comes up so much in conversations with parents. Um, I I talked to a a guy in suburban Kentucky. I can't imagine anything quieter than suburban Kentucky, except maybe Mars. And um, he let his 12 year old walk to her friend's house, which was two houses away. And the mother walked. This daughter back when the play date, which I hate that word, but when the play date was over. And the reason was, you know, probably it's fine, but I could never forgive myself. And so there's this inflated sense that almost any moment could be your kids last. And that seems new this always imagining, I call it worst first thinking, because I think stranger danger did such a number on us that I was trying to come up with another rhyming phrase. Obviously stranger danger is doing a lot better than worst first thinking, but, but worst first thinking is what I see, which is going to the worst case scenario and working your way backwards to it and saying like, well, it probably won't happen, but nonetheless, I might as well just get off the couch and walk her the two houses down in suburban Kentucky, because Mm -hmm. why not? And so it feels like what parents have now is sort of the idea that if you're not supervising constantly, your kid is in danger. And then you have um, more smaller families, which allow you to lavish that kind of attention on your kids. And you have two incomes, which allows you to sort of outsource any time that you can't be with your kids. You have the money to pay for whether it's a babysitter or an after-school activity, there there's always um, an ability to put your child into a supervised situation. And that means that whether it's you or you by proxy or you by tech, you are always watching over your kids. I, I was about to publish a piece, and I, I'm still debating it, on, on um, the Let Grow blog um, about a mom who was complaining that schools send home grades all the time now electronically, and they can also send home behavior reports and so that means that you know almost before your kid what grade they got on their Spanish quiz and did they hand in their homework and it just feels like it feels like children have this exoskeleton of being a human but on the inside it's all parent right they know where you are they know how you did they they decide what you're doing tomorrow they have to time your reading log here in America you get 20 minutes of reading every night and the parents have to sign the log and it just feels like real, I don't know, agency or something, something has been eviscerated. And I I do think that's a problem because we do see kids feeling very anxious. And you feel anxious when you don't think you can handle something, right? And until you have proof that you can, um, you think that you're incompetent and there's there's this phrase in psychology called an internal locus of control you know the locus of control who controls your life who can make things happen Mm -hmm. who can deal with things who can who can hop back up again that's an internal locus of control and an external locus of control is somebody else is determining your life and of course prison is the ultimate you know, external locus of control. And I'm not saying that parents are keeping uh, their children in prison, but I am saying that the culture of constantly doing things with and for and optimizing kids' lives because there's an adult there all the time means that kids never realize that they are competent people too, that they are people too.
0: This brings me kind of to then, I guess, a conversation about the dreaded internet, because in terms of the free range lifestyle that children experience, in a way, mm-hmm. children have never been more independent. They have the possibility to have an entire social life mm-hmm. and, in, you know, an entire entertainment consumption, all of these things in a way that is basically very hard for parents to regulate. And in a way that is a form of independence, mm-hmm. I, you know, which runs contrary to the increasing pressure, I know, it's on, so on strange,
1: them. isn't it? There's this, I always think of the lion, the witch and the wardrobe, you know, the the CS, the, the Narnia Chronicles, you go into the wardrobe, and then suddenly, you're in this entire other world. And there, you know, there's the snow queen, and there's Turkish yeah. delight, but it feels like that's what is offered to kids. And I think that's maybe, I mean, I don't think kids would ever stage a revolution anyhow. But I mean, that's how they do have another world to go to. And um, so Let Grow was co-founded by me and a man named Daniel Shuckman, who um, ran uh, was the chairman of something called FIRE, which fights for free speech on campus. Uh, but then we have Peter Gray, who has spent his life talking about the importance of just independence and mixed age free play, and Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind and has a new book coming out called The Anxious Generation. And um, John would like to see kids without phones or kids with just dumb phones. Um, and no social media until about age sixteen. And Peter thinks phones great. You know, at least there's some place where kids can still have fun. And they've come to agree on video games being often okay. You know, it, it is a place that kids are still talking to each other and they're strategizing and they're having fun, even if they're separate um, on their on their computers. But Peter thinks that phones are fine. You know, don't, don't keep making life. You know, kids always want to have the tools that their parents have, that, you know, the tools of the generation, whether that's a, a spear or a, or a cell phone. And John is worried that they're missing out on the human interaction that would make them whole and mm-hmm. that they're so obsessed with, you know, whether it's comparison or likes. Or, you know, getting uh, radicalized in whatever way, you know, Hamas or anorexia, whatever it is, that, that that's a problem. And and here I am in the middle of my two parents fighting, you know, because I can see both things. And so Let Grow really pushes what I think is the, the one thing that I do believe in, which is to make a sanctuary of time and place after school where kids can gather and it should be at the school because that's where they already are. And you don't have to worry about them going home and getting back on their phones or being driven to soccer practice, which you would call football practice. Um, leave, leave a couple hours after school and an hour before school when the playground is open, when there's balls and jump ropes and chalk, where devices are not allowed, and where the adults don't intervene. And, and most adults shouldn't be there. Your parents shouldn't be there. It should just be some, you know, teenager or maybe a teacher or whatever it is. The gym teacher, somebody's out there in case of emergencies, like a lifeguard. But otherwise the kids are interacting, they're playing, they love it. They feel less lonely. They're learning all the social emotional skills you learn from organizing a game and arguing about whether the ball was in or out. So um, Peter and me and John and Dan <laughs> all all love this idea of, if the world is crazy and if kids aren't having a chance to do things on their own and even interact and joke around, even argue on their own, make a space for that. Just like there's a wildlife sanctuary. I call it a child life sanctuary. We actually call it the Let Grow Play Club. But that seems to be um, a very practical and simple and cheap thing that any school could start tomorrow.
0: Do you think schools do enough I mean I don't have any interactions with schools at all to be honest I don't know what the <laughs> what the stance is now whether children are allowed to bring phones into classes presumably they're not allowed to use them during classes yeah. but but you know is there more that schools can do to make sure that some of these technological Impulses—the sort of impulse to constantly be scrolling on Instagram or TikTok or whatever—because I, you know, there's there's been data about the amount of screen time that children have, mm-hmm. Gen Z have mm-hmm. on TikTok, and it it blows my mind. I mean, it I blows know. my mind. It's
1: like, wait a minute, how can you have 27 hours in a day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like lawyers and their billing hours. Um, right, right. So I I totally agree with John, and I think if, I won't keep talking about internal politics. Yes. Phones should be taken away from kids in the morning and given back after play club, (laughs) after after they spent their two hours in play club, because I don't see any reason kids should have phones in school. I mean, we didn't bring little televisions with ourselves to school. We didn't need them there. We didn't need a, a, you know, a, a telegraph. I mean, the the reason that they are in schools is often because. Parents say I need to be in touch with them because of good old American school shootings. Um, mm-hmm. So I did some research on it, and it turns out that you're not safer with a phone. You want the kids, God forbid, I don't even like talking about this like it's a real possibility because it's still, thank God, extremely rare. I'm knocking on, it. obviously it wasn't wood, it's <laughs> it's some kind of plastic. But anyways, the, the point is that you want the kids to be paying attention to their teacher or whatever is being said over the loudspeaker. And mm-hmm. so there's no... There's no safety reason for phones to be in school, and there's every reason for them not to be in school. You want kids interacting. You want them paying attention to the teacher, and you want them paying attention to their friends and not, uh, you know, the Simpsons when when it's lunchtime or when it's time to be outside. So. I think that that is going to happen really soon. I know that your country came out with an edict or something, right? Didn't it? Didn't, didn't wasn't there a Great Britain? I've, I've actually got no
0: idea, but yeah, it sound,
1: that sounds plausible. I hope so. It's just one of these things that happened, and now it. Now we have to go, wow, that was a bad idea. It's like, you know, should we have cigarettes at lunchtime? It's like, yes. It's like, oh, actually, maybe not. <laughs> you know, let's take those away.
0: Okay. So no cigarettes at lunchtime. Um, mm-hmm. Finally, I, I want to do the kind of ask you the final kind of like impossibly big question, which oh, you may not be able to answer, <laughs> which is that, you know, I, I'm sort of looking at this generation because everyone sees the younger generation. It's like, wow, they're really screwing it all up. Right. But,
1: uh, Since Socrates.
0: Yeah. But you see the, um, you know, childhood is a preparation for adulthood and, I do worry that my continued adulthood and the adulthood that ch- current children are heading for is going to be a a different sort of adulthood. And we've seen it kind of with the advent of hybrid and remote working, that, mm-hmm. you know, completely changed the social interactions around the labor market. And I would expect, and I think most technologists expect those sort of trends to be exacerbated by, you know, artificial intelligence and, you know, the, the, the continued integration of remote work that's mm-hmm. that's that's coming. It may be that adult life looks in 20, 30 years time, very different and very much less tactile than it does currently. How do you prepare a child for that? How do you prepare a child now for the fact that, you know, we may be setting them up for an adulthood that, it, that is altogether less independent, less social? than, you know the adulthoods that we've we've had.
1: So the, the part about independence that interests me is surveillance, and I think you don't want to accustom anybody to the idea that they're only safe if somebody is watching them, whether that's a parent or the government or the school or whatever. You just you want to raise a generation that believes in some privacy and um, some self sufficiency, right? So uh, I don't want to set them up for that. As far as like, do they have to prepare for a world that there'll be artificial intelligence and, and more social media that that will happen automatically because that's just what's out there. So I don't feel like you have to prepare them for that any more than you have to prepare them to walk. This will happen Mm. automatically. They'll be okay. What I would want to prepare them for, um, or what I would want to do is lay the groundwork that has been since the dawn of history, which is real world interactions, um, whether that's outside running an errand, whether that's doing something for your family, whether that's meeting up with a friend and spending time with them where you're not both just showing each other cat videos. So I just say um, what has served humanity, you know, throughout its history is groups of mixed age kids being together, the little kids going, you know, trying to catch up to the big kids and trying to be like them, the big kids taking a little care and then sometimes taking no care of the younger kids so that the younger kids, you know, have to prove their worth and their merit. And this is something that happens throughout the entire animal kingdom and in the entire human kingdom, except in times of, you know, slavery or war. And so I'd say don't throw that out, even though we're getting, you know, TikTok and uh, portals to the grades. Make sure that there's some time that kids are in the world, sometime that they're helping you out in real life, sometime that they're interacting with people that they don't know and having adventures that just aren't just online.
0: Yeah, I guess that, that's what I kind of was getting at is the sense that, like, you can keep the people safe during their childhood, but eventually they get kicked out the front door, they have to go off to their office job, you know, they have to go down the pub and socialize and meet people and, you know, fall in love and all of that sort of stuff. And it may be that in 20, 30 years time, they don't have to do that, they can, you know, they can, you know, I, I know a lot of Americans, kind of shocking numbers of Americans in my mind are homeschooling their children. You know, I know that a lot of college is now remote, you know, it may be that people can go through a lot of their adult life without ever having to do these sort of you know, to smell the grass and, you know, mm-hmm, and you know, mm-hmm. meet people and shake hands and, you know, all of those sort of things.
1: Right. So I do worry about loneliness and passivity. And Let Grow doesn't only promote the play club. We also promote other ideas like having kids have a homework assignment to go home and do something new on their own without their parents in the real world, you know, walk the dog, run an errand. But when I was talking to some kids who um, were at a play club, because I just wanted to get an idea of like, how does it You know, how is it, it, what, what does it mean to you in your life? And it was poignant because these were kids who were in third and fourth grade. And I said, do you like playing more with your friends, you know, uh, online or in real life? And they said in real life, and they said things that like killed me. (laughs) One was, um, I love playing video games, but when you take off your headphones, there's no one there. And another one, that was a boy. And then a girl said like, I like playing in real life because then when you come to school, you have friends. So reality isn't going away, even if it's augmented by, you know, the, the the internet. And there's something that even these third graders who were not primed by you or me to, you know, say bad things about technology, kids, <laughs> you know, prove that the play club is great. They were just, they recognize the difference between um, their online world and their interactions in real life. And they were still even, you know, you know, they were so young that they grew up in this era, right? With phones being just like coming out of the womb with them. Um, and they, they recognized the primacy and the importance and the joy of real life. And to say that they don't need that or won't need that doesn't make sense.
0: The Ned Lard Radio Hour is a podo podcast, written and presented by me, Nick Hilton. And if you want to get in touch, you can email me at nick at podopods.com, that's P-O-D-O-T pods.com. And you can find us on Twitter at, at NedLudLives. And for all the socials and stuff, go to nedludlives.com. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed the show, please go and leave a rating and review on whatever provider you use podcasts. And if you haven't enjoyed the show, well, you've made it astonishingly far into this. Um, So, you know, give yourself a break in life. Don't listen to 45 minutes of a podcast you're not enjoying. I mean, no one's forcing you to. Anyway, till next week.